Good afternoon, and welcome to the Zitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of July 2022. In the couple of weeks since summer solstice, we have seen some summery weather here in Sitka, fortunately buffered a little bit by sea breezes and the marine layer, keeping temperatures into the 60s and upper 60s at times, not getting quite so hot as uh, might be uncomfortable for some of us. It is a summer season and a great time to get out and look for wildflowers and observe birds, especially those young fledgling birds who are a little less wary than their adult caretakers. We are already starting to see some southbound migrants. The shorebirds get started early, and I saw some last week heard reports of others. I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Matt Wilson. He's the aquarist at the Sitka Sound Science Center. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with him, giving a little bit of an introduction to himself and his background. My name is Matt Wilson. I am a marine biologist, and as a subset of that, I am an aquarist. So uh, that means I take care of aquariums, whether that be the husbandry of the animals, the healthcare acquisition and collection of animals, permitting, all of those things are things that I do. Uh, I'm originally from Washington, uh, the Seattle area, and uh, I've been an aquarist for about 10 years now. Um, Worked at a few different places uh, around Puget Sound down there, but now I'm up here at Sitka Sound Science Center and having a blast so far. Oh, nice. So you started at the Science Center, was it last winter? Yeah, in December, mid-December. Oh, that's a dark time of year to uh, come. And then and then I guess your introduction was a little wetter than normal even with January oh, and February. Oh, icy. <laughs> yeah, in December. And then it was January and February, I guess, that were quite wet. Yeah. So Puget Sound is kind of your, your baseline, I guess. It's yep. what you're familiar with. And is that where you had worked previously as well? Yes. Yeah, so. exactly. So all of my... Studies and working has all been Puget Sound-based until now, which is one of the reasons why this is so exciting now is because there's just so many similarities, but also so many differences um, among these ecosystems and uh, a lot of similar animals in completely different habitats. So. Oh, interesting. So when when you say, I mean, so it's Puget Sound area, and Puget Sound is more protected than Sitka yeah. Sound and, and so forth. More like, I suppose, the inside waters of southeast Alaska. Yes. I suppose that's part of the difference. But also, I would imagine the temperature is a big part of the difference Temperature as well. is huge. And temperature and depth and uh, the change of depth. Like, here I go out diving, and it's usually I'm at 30 feet if I go diving. That's crazy to me because in Puget Sound, it's like, okay, we're going right to 60 because... That's how the topography is, and that's where life starts in a lot of cases, like the life that we're looking at. Uh, we don't see a lot of uh, stuff above that, except for a lot of the intertidal animals uh, basically fill that whole area. Hmm. So, really weird. So, the equivalent here is about 30 feet to 60 feet there, and is yeah. that is that is there a clear temperature? Like, well, that's where the temperature is, and so that's why, or is it is it more than just the temperature? It definitely, it's different depending on where you're at in Puget Sound, especially like further south sound where you get less water exchange and you get more freshwater exchange. Um, uh, you can get a lot of halocline, so differences in salinity really mucking things up, uh, as well as just definite temperature gradients. Um, you get thermoclines uh, where there's just a absolute defined line of where that change in temperature is. Um, but it's a lot more mixed up here. So you can, 
uh, you can't really define exactly where that spot of, oh, all of a sudden I just hit a spot that's five degrees lower. You know, it's, it's a lot more homogenous in that regard. Hmm. Well, and I guess this is something that I'm, I've been curious about. For example, there was um, some folks in uh, Kenai Peninsula or that live on Kenai Peninsula and post on a naturalist. They like to go intertidaling, mm-hmm. uh, tide pooling. And they had never found the little porcelain crabs, Aramaris petrolistes, I guess yeah. is the one that's here. Until recently, like the last year or so, and they've been doing this for a handful of years. Oh, interesting. I just found some of those guys recently. Yeah, there's a bunch of them here. And that's why I told them, I said, they're all over the place here. But for whatever reason, they were, you know, it was last year, maybe the year before they started showing up there. And now they're finding them pretty frequently. So it seems like, well, they would have seen them, given what they're seeing now, they would have seen them before if, if they had been there, at least in those numbers. And so then it was like, well, I mean, because crabs have a planktonic stage so they could drift over there and get get established and and it kind of brings up the question of well what kept them from doing that before is it yeah. is it general climate thing and apparently not because because they're there now and it's not that different um or is it like one-off events uh, either colonization events mm-hmm. you know and it just took them a while or they just got lucky to get there at some point because it was currents weren't really in their favor until this one time right. Or is it like last winter, you know, you mentioned it was cold when you when you came here. We had some really frigid uh, yeah. temperatures there. And there was a low tide series at the same time. Yes. And so they found tons of frozen crabs. And so then the question was like, oh, maybe that is the sort of thing that happens. They have like negative four tides up there pretty regular. It's mm-hmm. the way the, the uh, tides work there. It's, they're more extreme than here. And it's also colder. It's further north and right. closer to that kind of continental climate sort of thing but it turned out that they are still seeing them this summer so that wasn't a to- i mean a lot of crabs died but it wasn't like a kill them all off sort yes, of event right but generally speaking and and this is part of why i was reminded because you're describing you know differences between puget sound and here but some organisms can clearly move so if the temperature goes up and down they can go up and down with the temperature especially if they're in the water column, you know, there's that's happening. But for organisms that are stuck in a place, essentially, right. like what is it that, is, is it the sort of the average that, that allows them to be there or not? Or is it the extremes that, that show up that allow them to be or not? I mean, do you have a sense of that? I, I imagine yeah. it's different for different organisms. Exactly. But. Definitely different for different organisms. You know, you get tidepool sculpins that are possibly one of the hardiest animals of all time. They're sitting in a pool that's got a freshwater stream running into it, and it's now 70 degrees when, you know, the actual water temperature is 40 degrees, and they can handle just insane differences. So they're definitely, like, one that's handling those extremes, you know. They are excluding all other organisms by just being insanely tough. But then you definitely have other organisms that are uh, using the average of... I've now found, you know, the sweet spot of what I can handle. And so I don't want to go any higher than this and I don't want to go any lower than this. And I think that that's where we tend to find quite a few different ecological niches, especially like sea stars. So you've got purple stars. They're going to go way up into the intertidal. They're going to be just fine up there for the most part. Uh, but then like modeled stars, they're going to be further down uh, your Evasterius. They're always going to be like right on that intertidal line or below. And they're choosing that average there. And that's how they've evolved to to fit those niches uh, and not compete with each other. 
because um, they have very, very similar diets and relatively similar lifestyles as well. So I definitely choosing those points there, if they overlap too much, I think there, there would just be too much competition between those species um, in order for them to both thrive in an area. Yeah, that's interesting to consider it in those terms as well. And I suppose as you adapt to a, a particular niche that there ends up being like you can, I don't know, stuck is maybe not the right word, but essentially you can get stuck there. Like like as, as you utilize it, I guess, then, right. then you become more uh, optimized for it and probably consequently less able to handle things outside of that. Right. You I mean, in the long run. Ecological dead ends where, you know, the more specialized you are, the more vulnerable you are. If you are a generalist that can handle lots of different environments and you can eat a wide variety of food, you win evolutionarily. We see it time and time again across the fossil record that these generalist species pretty much always win out. Uh, whereas the most vulnerable ones are the ones that are so specialized and have a food source or an, a habitat that is just so small and fragile uh, that the moment that that goes away, so do they. So in short term, and we're speaking like geologic time, yes. here, I suppose. In the short term, it's advantageous because you're so specialized, like you do except you do better than any generalist. Exactly. But you're vulnerable to events that shift what is available. Exactly. If you can all of a sudden go, I'm going to go eat a sponge because no one else can eat a sponge without their insides bleeding, but I can do it. I now have a food source that is basically safe in the short term. But if all of a sudden something happens to all those sponges and they all die off, I'm done because I haven't adapted to eat anything else. I've, I'm eating sponges, things that are basically completely immobile and can't run away and have no defense other than just that they're really nasty to eat. <laughs> so if uh, if that happens, you're you're done for. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to kind of think about it in, in those terms, because, of course, you know, our experience is much more limited <laughs> than that in terms of our perspective, uh, given our, our lifetimes relatively short that they are in, in sort of that big scheme of mm -hmm. big scheme of things. And so when you're when you have those organisms, I mean, so you're getting to understand them in a different way. You know, as I we go people go tide pooling or whatever we see and we right. might get a little bit of interaction and see something catch another thing or, or various things like that, you know, poke our finger into a sea anemone or something and, mm -hmm. and just see kind of some of the ways that they behave. But when you have you know, the responsibility and, and opportunity to observe these and take care of these, uh, you know, including the, the feeding and the uh, health maintenance, essentially, of, of organisms where you can control to a significant degree the temperature and salinity and, you know, the conditions that they're living in, as well as the food that they're getting, then I guess you would have a the opportunity to learn a little bit more than than the average tide pooler about how at least the animals that you're caring for absolutely are are living yeah i mean i so a huge specialty of mine is jellies and jellies are amazing for all the different ways that they adapt to different water conditions so as i work with different jellies and especially their polyp phases where you know, they're super, super tiny, just a couple of millimeters. They look like little anemones. Um, and that's where they produce their, their Medusa form from, their uh, free-swimming form. Those polyps are all reliant on certain 
triggers in the environment. So whether that's salinity, temperature, even just physical movement, whatever, in order to start their reproductive process, their asexual reproduction. We can play around with that a lot to see exactly what triggers them. We can see uh, whether certain chemicals trigger them. Um, and that's been a ton of fun over the years, playing around with these polyps and seeing exactly what is causing that change in their environment that causes them to start their reproduction. We also can then take that and look at these huge jellyfish blooms that we're getting uh, around the world. And we can see, oh, we're seeing a change in climate. And then we're seeing somebody basically flip the light switch for the reproduction of these polyps on. And then it's getting flipped off and then flipped back on and flipped off and on. And that's what's causing, you know, these huge blooms. But we also see things all the time with crabs. Crabs are they're kind of my nemesis in that they're really hard to take care of. People mm. think that crabs are just like you throw them in the back and you just throw scraps around. And that's what I found to really not be the case. So many crabs are really specialized in what they're doing. A lot of them have really specialized claw shapes for certain uh, prey types. I found um, scaly crabs. Scaly crabs, Placitron, is such a an incredible crab and I didn't realize and nobody knew to a, a great extent until I did some more research that they're specifically fish eaters. Mm. And so their claws, they've got these big, long kind of look like spoons for scooping on one side and, you know, lots of these little hairs that help grab and, and sense. I had no idea. And of course I put them in with a bunch of fish and all of a sudden they started grabbing all my fish and eating them. Cause I just didn't know what I was doing. Uh, you know, one of those aquarist blunder moments. But it, it taught me so much as I realized, oh, there's something going on here. They have a specific need. They have a specific niche that they're filling. And so now how do I recreate that best? And how do I do that while also displaying these animals for people to actually, you know, learn from and enjoy? So that's always a, a difficult balance there <laughs> yeah so so are these are they ambush feeders are they just sort of hiding the, basically in they're going and they're trapping things in holes they're going and looking for things that are living in crevices and taking these big long slender scoops of claws and reaching into these crevices and grabbing fish out of there uh, i see so so the fish that like to hide in holes which is a lot most of them, of them. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are then vulnerable to these to these uh, crabs. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, uh, for them, I guess. Uh, so when you're a crab like that, is it willing to eat dead fish, or do you pretty much have to have it's, a, a supply it, it of live fish? It can be a mixed bag. That's yeah. that's always a difficulty. Is you're taking animals from the wild and you're seeing how they're going to do in an environment that is now, you know, no matter how well I'm doing it, it's fabricated. And I need them to think I'm safe and I want to do my natural behaviors, even if, you know, I'm going to hand you a floppy dead herring and hope that you're just going to go for it. Sometimes it's a learning process of like, I might shove some fish in a hole and they might reach in there and go, oh, there's a fish there and I'm going to grab it, whether it's, it's alive or not. So sometimes it's just recreating that feeding behavior or it can be like literally teaching might have to start live and find some some way to do a live food source. It's not too uncommon to have to do some sort of live food. Uh, but then 
all of a sudden maybe we're going to feed a live one and a dead one and they're going to go, oh, they're going to make an association because believe it or not, a crab is smart enough to do that. Crabs are smarter than people give them credit for in a lot of cases, even if they don't always seem like it. <laughs> um, and, and we see that same situation um, with a lot of fish species or um, like basket stars right now. Really beautiful uh, brittle stars that with big branching arms. Um, I love them so much. But they uh, require, in a lot of cases, that you change the flow on them before they feed hmm. because they are used to getting ready for a tidal exchange and a change in flow, and that carries food towards them into their arms and usually carries the, the krill that they like to feed on. And so if you change the flow in a tank... Uh, I have two different inflows uh, for their tank. I do that about 10 minutes before I start feeding. They're ready to feed when I get there. They've opened all their arms. Even though there's no food in the tank, it's just a, a trigger of their physical environment change that tells them, hey, I'm about to get some food that's going to flow by me. Let's get ready. Hmm. Yeah, that's. An, I mean, I suppose... In hindsight, when you say that, of course, it sounds really obvious, but uh, it right? it also sounds like the sort of thing that could have taken a long time to figure out, like, what is it that yeah. if they're just sitting there and they're curled up and not eating anything, uh, and you're like, what's wrong with these yeah. things? Why are they not eating? Uh, and it's it's such a simple solution. Well, just change the flow in the tank and, and it'll all be good. But yeah, it, it makes me wonder how long it took the first person to kind of figure that out. Right. Not, the first guy to figure it out was... was uh, Dr. Chad Widmer, um, formerly of Monterey Bay, now at, at Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium, my mentor and an absolute mad genius of uh, animal husbandry. The guy does things with jellies that I still can't believe and fathom. So <laughs> uh, super, super intelligent guy that I have to uh, give a shout out to. Yeah, nice. The so you mentioned the jellies, and I know that the the Science Center Aquarium does have a tank for jellies. Yep. And, and and I guess maybe it'd be worth being clear here. So there's there's two major groups of what many of us would just call jellyfish, generally right. speaking. And one I, of them I use is, this big umbrella term called gelata, okay, uh, yeah. or gelatinous macroplankton, for, to basically refer to any free swimming thing that has a gelatinous body, whether it's related or not. Big umbrella term, but so, yeah, as you're saying, so is the hydrozoa and the and the Cyzozoa or something like uh, that. Yeah, the Cyphozoa. Cyphozoa. Yep. And so the the true jellyfish, I guess, under this are the Cyphozoa, yep. which are the like around locally the most common one would be moon jellies and um, the uh, red jellies, the lions, lions mane, yeah, lions mane jellies. For sure. And then there might be a couple a couple others that show up sometimes, but those yeah. two are pretty common. And then all the other little. And those, the 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 uh, clearer ones that 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 tend to be like so the jellyfish seem to have more op opacity to them I guess yes. they're less clear. Yep. And so the hydrozoa, this other group, are they seem to be more abundant, um, yes. but tend to be smaller and more clear. But they have some cool little markings and designs and stuff in, in them. It seems they do. Like. They do. Yeah. I'm keeping hydrozoan medusa right now. Some hydrozoan jellies. I'm keeping red eye medusa uh, at the moment. Um, Partly because they were around, partly because they're cool, and partly because I don't have moon jellies yet. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but they're they're super fascinating. But they they are kind of a, a more specialized form of being a jelly, whereas most of our our true jellies are not capable of a lot of uh, lateral movement. 
Um, they can basically orient themselves up to the surface if they want and then sink themselves down a little bit, but they're not going to be traveling distance, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can, you know, pulse their bells, but they're, they're not going to get a lot of um, movement out of that. Whereas a lot of these smaller um, hydrozoan jellies, they've got a little uh, ring under the bottom that actually concentrates their flow. So when they do pulse, they move a lot. Uh, so right now, my red-eye Medusa, you can see them almost perfectly. One half of the tank is in their I'm-getting-ready-to-feed stage as they move through the flow, and they orient themselves and actively move to the spot that they want to be in. And then once they've found it, they stop pulsing, they let out all their tentacles, they extend them like five times longer than they were before, super elastic, and then they slowly fall down. And then as they get down to the bottom they go and do that again they complete that cycle of i'm going to go move and then i'm going to position myself uh to feed so it's a more active um predation than what we typically think of from a lot of of jellies and what Uh, are they what are you feeding them i'm feeding them brine shrimp right now um that i'm hatching every day uh that's kind of usually the the jelly uh staple in most of their diets often we'll start with brine shrimp and rotifers and then work our way to some more specialized foods if they need it um so like i will probably as i'm catching copepods and amphipods um just out of the water right now i try to supplement with some of that um but right now the bulk of their diet brine shrimp good old sea monkeys yeah (laughs) the uh i guess you know when i'm looking down in the water there's like tons of those little copepods and and tiny amphipods Mm -hmm. which i don't know if that's like baby amphipods or or that's just Depends on which species. Sometimes species that's as big just... as they get, and amphipods and copes are such a, a crazy, varied world of uh, some of those may stay just like that their entire life or grow into some weird parasitic horror. Uh, it, But they all kind of start in that tiny copepoded stage uh, or smaller uh, amphipod stages uh, as well where they're uh, all starting as a, a free-swimming organism like that plankton yeah and they're i mean they're like abundant just in the shallow water when i go down to the beach for for inner toes just like little little bits <laughs> swimming about pretty yeah. quickly um are so are they coming in in the water supply as well or yep. they, and so so some of the stuff that likes to eat those is having the i mean they they're catching them just yeah. out of the the yeah. water supply exactly so as as i could if i wanted to close off tanks and uh, change, you know, more parameters like that, have more control uh, over temperature and salinity and all of those other factors. The baseline is that they're all coming from Sitka right here. I don't have any non-native species, so it's really advantageous for us in most cases to just pull seawater. And in uh, my uh, workings, I have always preferred to not only do an open system where I'm pulling seawater in constantly, uh, but to try and not filter it as much as I can, because that changes what happens in our tanks uh, to a dramatic degree. Degree, yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, all of those planktonic animals are coming in, and many of them are going to grow up into larger macroscopic life. And uh, because of that, there's a lot of animals that are going to recruit themselves into our tanks that we are not actively trying to catch but it's creating a more natural environment so things like tube worms even even whole abalone coming in and growing up in our tanks um, limpets chitons all of these different 
um, grazers and encrusting growth that we wouldn't have otherwise if we were to just close it off and say, all right, we're good. Uh, yeah. You know, you're, you're closing it off to a huge area of life. And all of your filter feeders are going to love that as well because, of course, now they're getting some natural plankton. And so I don't have to go quite as hard as, you know, with the sea monkeys making sure every little right. mouth gets fed. Yeah, so. I mean, that could be a, quite a challenge because I imagine it's difficult to know, like, specific nutrient needs of, of an organism. Right. And, and whether, you know, your, your chopped up herring, you know, bits that you're, you're throwing into the tanks or whatever it is that you have are actually, you know, maybe they're enough to survive on for a time. But ultimately, exactly. like, there's, there's some mac- micronutrient missing that, that is, is pretty important. Yeah, you can, you can work as hard as you can, but sometimes you'll see that. It's like, oh, they're eating, they're good. And then there's there's a, a slow decline uh, where you see, oh, this this animal is not getting what it needs, you know. And so then you start looking into supplementation and everything. But also natural seawater gets you so far in that regard. Um, just having um, that more complete ecosystem um, and that whole food web, not quite the whole food web because we're not pulling in everything, but um, a more complete food web. Right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And so, with these jellies, the the red eye medusas that you, you yep. said you had, are they like they're so that you already mentioned the the like the jellyfish life cycle. Maybe they're they're pretty similar though. They have this uh, stage that I, you know I, I spoke to somebody that studied jellyfish before, and she was describing that the their life cycle essentially that they have this. <laughs> it can look like just a little. Uh, biotic fuzz i guess yep. on on like docks and and that sort of a thing i hadn't Absolutely. realized or i didn't remember hearing that that there are particular triggers to them and so like these massive blooms can be from from uh the the uh, climate or or whatever conditions being right at a threshold and just kind of varying around exactly. it so you're yeah the, the the light switch thing that you described there it's like oh that makes sense yeah they because because they, they're capable of just like sending out you know repeatedly yeah. these these because the polyps are never turning into the medusa that's the weird part of it is the jellyfish life cycle and it's so hard to to fathom as a human where we our life cycle goes in a circle you know it's a sexual reproduction whereas the jellyfish uh, they are sexual and asexual, and their life cycle starts as a circle and then has these weird offshoots and then also some kind of dead ends on it. Um, but they're all really important to eventually creating more jellies. But the, the gist of it is that their reproductive uh, method is mass production on a scale that most animals cannot compare to because they are never completing their life cycle in that the the polyp is never turning into the medusa so the polyp is is a factory that can live forever as a polyp and can just continue to make jellies its whole life and so 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 yeah so they're just there i mean uh, as i recall it's like conditions can kill them but but they Mm -hmm. don't have a natural sort of senescence as best we can tell no they don't and they can even as certain species go into these dormant phases that are super, super hardy to survive out bad conditions as well. So they can really be ultimate survivors, these polyps of the jellies. 
Yeah, that's kind of a remarkable adaptation that they have there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so those, and, and is that true for both the the big groups? Like they have this the stage. Yes and no. They're, so the 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 very general way that we talk about um, hydromedusa differences from siphon uh, uh, medusa is that they are not just different in their um, free swimming anatomy. But the, we say that there are different primary stages where we say basically the dominant stage in Hydromedusa is actually the sessile form, the one that's not moving, what we were talking about as a, as a polyp. Because we call those hydroids. They're a coral-like organism. And instead of being a single polyp, they are a colonial animal that has um, a bunch of different animals all living to create a single organism, just like we would imagine a coral reef um, scenario would be. And sometimes those hydroids can be very, very large, um, sometimes inches you know, tall or uh, larger, whereas sometimes these hydromedusa are only millimeters. There's so many that we never even see because they are so small that we don't even notice them in the water unless we're actually you know, looking for uh, all of this microplankton. Whereas the Cyphozoa, we say that their dominant stage is in the medusa. They've got these big, huge medusa. A lion's mane can be absolutely enormous, you know, some up to uh, several meters across, whereas they come from a polyp that's only a few millimeters tall. Um, and that's always the case. So they, they're never going to be, um, you know, this big charismatic polyp. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's always just oh, there's a weird fuzz that popped off a thing, and now we've got uh, a lion's mane jelly that's several feet across. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I've seen some, some of the hydroid, uh, you know, organisms, I guess, the, um, uh, the, the larger ones that you were speaking about. But as I recall, yeah, from the other jellyfish researcher, she was saying that, yeah, there's a number of species where one form, you know, where the swimming form is is known and yes. and is is understood well, but nobody has ever found exactly. The, and so the, that's yeah. actually, I'm glad you brought that up. So those those red eyes that I'm working with right now, no one's ever completed the life cycle on them. Uh, it's something I'm working on right now. I had embryos yesterday, and I have uh, planula larvae today. Um, so I am, that's been done before, but I want to now get those planula, which are the larval form of the hydroid, um, to settle out and become that sessile form. That's what's never been done before. So I'm really, really excited to be playing around with this. I've got so many, uh, adults right now to work with, uh, to get, um, gametes from. So I'm really excited to see how that turns out, and maybe I'll be the first person to pull it off, <laughs> uh, really hoping. But the other crazy thing is that we think that there may be a number of these species that don't have a sessile form. Oh. So maybe it's not just that we haven't found it. It could be that they go right from this planula larva all the way to a free-swimming medusa, or that maybe there's some other intermediate in between that we don't even know about. So... <laughs> So you have these swimming around in a tank, yep. and they're at, at this stage when they're in that free swimming stage, they're sexually reproducing, yep. releasing the bits into the water, and yep. then, um, and then, and so then these larvae develop. How are are you just like uh, taking samples of the water and and looking with a microscope, sort so of thing? So what I'm doing is is there's this this uh, 
pretty common technique with, with jellies. If you want to get some polyps, you take some nice ripe adults and you put them in a Ziploc bag overnight. And then you come back the next morning and you take your jellies out and you basically look in the corners of the bag mm. and you start just pipetting out. And fortunately, these I can actually, I can just see them. They're barely macroscopic. I can actually see what I'm working with. Um, and sure enough, yesterday I had early embryos. Uh, I put five red-eye medusa in a bag, you know, hedge my bets there. I want to make sure I've got males and females because they are separate sexes. And then I came back uh, and saw, oh, I've got some weird little dots in here, throw them under a, a microscope, and I went, oh, I've got embryos. And so within uh, just the time that um, of that day while I was at work, um, I move them into some nice little dishes so that they can settle out and be happy. And, you know, I swirl them around a little bit to give them a little bit of water flow, a little water change. Um, but then they'd already started to uh, reach their final stage of development. Uh, and I saw them turn into little little tiny hairy peanuts and start to skitter around. <laughs> and so, so now the mystery is whether they settle and, and attach. Exactly. Or whether they... Well, we guess... Because we don't see them, I don't think we see them year round. No, so no, they're, they're doing very, very something. Seasonal. Or I guess they could just be so small for most of the yep. most of the year that you don't see them until they get big. And I guess I don't know what their growth curve is. And that's what nobody knows. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, I mean, they're the the jellies that you're starting with. They're what couple inches. The largest maybe? ones, yeah. yeah, between an inch and a couple, yeah, yeah. And um, so I mean, I've seen them, seen them along the shore before and stuff that it's it's much nicer to see it in that that uh that um tank that you have them in uh it highlights them them nicely you get to yeah. see some of the details and you can stuff. see more than just the top of the bell <laughs> yeah yeah i uh i think i where i i remember finding one was it you just it was in shallow water so i i like fished it out and put it in a little container but yeah. uh, to look at it but it was uh yeah one of the ways that i've enjoyed seeing them is just taking a bright uh, light and going to the harbor at night and just like shining into the water so you can highlight and it'll catch the the beam of light you know but everything else is dark so yeah you can... and they'll absolutely go to a beam of light too because they're oh, okay, so, so light sensitive so their their name red eye medusa there's a ring of photoreceptors um, that are bright red spots on the base of each tentacle and so if there's light, they're like, oh, that's where food's at. So they, mm. they know to follow right into a beam of light. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. so so it's kind of it, – it'll be fascinating, I guess, to, to learn. So the hope is that, you know uh, – and I guess the trick will be maybe they need some specific thing that, that triggers them to settle out, I guess. Exactly. It, so I'm guessing it's either a specific environmental trigger to do that or it could be a, a specific substrate. So mm-hmm. say they need to only settle on eelgrass. Um, that's something that I'm thinking about right now, and I might uh, make that as an attempt. Um, I'm going to start with just the the typical old jelly form of, do you want to stick to a, a glass dish? You know, yeah. that's the easy part. Um, but from what I've I've read and anecdotal stuff that I've heard, nobody's ever had that happen. So I'm wondering, is there a specific biofilm because I'm using pretty natural seawater, which is a little riskier because you you uh, risk contamination of your cultures. Um, I'm trying to see if I've got a more natural biofilm right now. Is that going to say, oh, this is this is a good environment. This is a, a, a natural environment for me where I want to settle out. So I'm trying that first, but we'll get more complex as we go. Yeah. Uh, the good thing is I've got plenty of, of red eyes to, to get some more 
a little larva from if I need. And I, right now I do have a lot of larva. I've got probably around a thousand. Oh wow! Um, just from just dishes. from five five jellies in a yeah. bag. Yep, just from five <laughs> jellies in a bag. I guess I guess it helps to be concentrated in the in the water. There's a little more success. Yes. Of, of the meeting. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's a. It, an interesting, yeah, I suppose, because they don't move very far, I guess. So you, I suppose, we think, but we, they could. So they, oh, okay. these planula could run on currents and just go for who knows how long. They, that's one of the things I'm also concerned about. Is we found that there's certain invertebrate species that have a larval form that might just stay in the water for years at a time and never settle out until it's found the exact perfect conditions or. That's just how their life is. They're going for maximum dispersal. Mm-hmm. And so the trigger for them to settle doesn't happen for a long period of time so that they can travel further. So you can't necessarily assume... Well, yeah, I guess you can't necessarily assume that where you're finding adults somewhere in the area, there would be the substrate that you would need. Yeah, we would hope. Yeah, We would think, and that would make the most sense, but the nature doesn't make sense uh, yeah. you know, in that regard. It's not going to play by what you think is most logical uh, at the moment because there's a lot more complexity than we can ever imagine going on. So yeah. that's always the hard part. Yeah, well, it's an interesting puzzle, I guess. It, it's, uh, I guess just to see how long these things survive as larvae if, if they're not finding anything. I mean, are they eating other no they so, don't have mouths so they they physically cannot eat until they uh, settle until they settle so they're working off just the uh energy that they got from their parents hmm well and so the 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 parents the the uh the jellies themselves that are in in the tank they are well th- their lifespan essentially is a season is that typical? seems to be because they uh as they're putting so much of this energy into reproduction, it usually tends to have such a negative overall impact on their body, uh, whereas they they senesce. They're kind of like salmon. You know, they're going to put all of that reproductive effort into their offspring. Um, and by the end, they usually start to shrivel up and not look so good. And weirdly, red-eye medusa are the only species of jelly that seems to also get a fouling growth on them. Hmm. They grow algae on them, so all of my red eyes are turning green. <laughs> and it's really strange, and I don't know whether it's like... I assume if it got so bad, it would be a negative thing. But I think uh, currently it's just kind of like a, well, that's weird. Uh, it makes me wonder strange. if there's a specific algae that's growing right. on them. I have to wonder now, yeah. like, is this green algae, you know, really specifically looking for red eyes? You know, nature would certainly do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting niche. Well, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, things are things are weird. So it, and so you're looking you're looking for to to introduce some other jellies into your sort of yeah. that you'd like to, yeah. to raise so as well. Definitely moon jellies. Um, there's a couple different species of moon jellies. The really common ones um, are are typical Pacific moon jelly, um, but there's also a brown rim moon jelly that I think should be in the area that I'd love to play around with. I've only played with their polyps before. Uh, I never got a chance to work with the Medusa stage, so I'd love to play around with that. Uh, but those basically form the base of your your food chain uh, in your lab. So you can grow up your moon jellies to also then feed to other species of jellies, so lion's mane, sea nettles, um, 
Oh, they all eat moon jellies? Yes, they are medusavores, so Mm. they eat other medusa. Hmm. And how is it, I mean, I guess if you can establish the the uh, medusa stage the the on the on the substrate oh the polyps so, yeah polyps yeah sorry um the polyp stage the uh that you can just keep those indefinitely that's, and that's the the beauty of jellies is that you have built-in trial and error <laughs> so as you're trying to figure out how the life cycles work if you've got a polyp that you can keep happy and healthy I've had the same polyp culture before for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. And they can continue to live and because the polyps themselves will then reproduce to make other polyps. Oh, so they can do that too. So, yeah, they, they do two different modes of asexual reproduction. Once again, things are weird. <laughs> so you can have polyps that make other polyps and also then make the Medusa stage. Um, so as long as you keep them happy and healthy and keep them from contaminating each other, cause moon polyps will take over every other type of polyp that you have. <laughs> oh, so they win, they win at the polyp stage and, yes. and they lose at the, exactly. at the Medusa stage. Yeah. They, they are pure, just like reproductive masters. As far as their polyps go, they can just cover such a huge area. And the, the polyps are basically like a pest at some point where it's like, they're in everything. You got to. Try and keep your water clean to keep, you know, your other cultures from getting taken over. Um, but, yeah, the lion's mane uh, are definitely a lot more sensitive, um, a little harder to keep. And, they, of course, they look almost exactly the same as moon polyps. So it's really oh. hard to be like, oh, is it contaminated? I don't know. They all look like white fuzzy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, I guess that is the, the joy and, and challenge of, of raising raising jellies. Yeah. When you decide, oh, you're a crazy person and you want to grow these weird organisms that are 99% water, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's not so easy to keep them. I guess you have to have a special kind of... I remember somebody uh, when Sheldon Jackson was, already, was a student that did a, a project and was trying to devise a sort of a it was like this this rack of of little tanks mm-hmm. um, for for growing plankton and stuff and and the problem was everything just wants to go down the drain yep. and so uh, it it when it's planktonic and the water flow goes into the drain they all go into the they're, drain they're eventually yeah, yeah exactly so with with jellies we have specific tanks called chrysals um, they're good for basically keeping anything tiny and free swimming from going down the drain that's exactly what they're they're for. Um, but they also require a bunch of fiddly fine-tuning and everything, and every little species and every size of that species needs their own little specific parameters and a constant flow. Otherwise, they all stuck to the bottom and, and die, you know, mm. or they get sucked out the outflow or, or whatever. Um, so it's a whole process. But the main reason that we do it, because then people are like, well, why, why do you bother? Just go catch some jellies. What are you, what are you doing? And the reason that I do that is because there's usually parasites in... Uh, wild jellies that will reproduce so fast in a contained system that they destroy your jellies within weeks or even Mm. days. Um, You get these little amphipods that burrow into their their bells. And as those amphipods are now in a closed system, more or less, they are able to reproduce in huge numbers. And normally those numbers would go off to go infect other jellies and you know swim off somewhere but they can't go anywhere they're in the tank and so they go right back onto the same jellies and you end up with huge parasite loads that just turn your your jellies to just swiss cheese in in days wow yeah it's it's interesting that anything i mean there are 
several species, and even some large species that just eat jellies, I guess. It doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of nutrients in them. Right, but, but there's so many things that do it, whether you know it's the world's largest bony fish, the mola mola, whether it's sea turtles, whether it's salmon. They all feed on jellies, whether that's their entire diet or part of their diet. We have all documented them uh, consuming these animals, and we don't necessarily know exactly why we know that they are getting nutrients for it and if you eat enough of them you'll get somewhere um but another part of it is also that the you basically have a a gut loading uh, effect where we talk about gut loading as aquarists where if you need your jellies for example to eat something really nutritious you want to find the uh the food that's got the most uh highest vitamins or whatever but your jelly might not eat that. So in the case of jellies, that's this tiny little uh, phytoplankton um, called nanochloropsis. It's super, super good for jellies, but it's so small, and it's just this gross little plankton that jellies don't want to eat. And so if you were to just throw it in, the jellies would do nothing with it. But if you then feed all that to a bunch of brine shrimp or some rotifers or some other food source, now you've got this super nutrient-packed, other animal that is now getting fed to that. So you have to basically work through the food chain uh, in order to get those nutrients where you want to go. So it could be that effect where jellies are are concentrating so much plankton all into one place that even just what's in their stomachs might be Mm. beneficial uh, in that regard. So instead of having to go catch all the little plankton myself, this thing already caught all the plankton and it's sitting in their stomachs and I can now just chomp that whole jelly and get some nutrients that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I spoke recently with somebody who is at the University of Alaska in Southeast. She, part of the work that she does looks at um, fatty acid profiles and so forth and just tracking food web stuff. And yep. so that's, that's a big thing for jellies. Huffas, highly unsaturated fatty acids. Okay. That's what jellies need. <laughs> so they're getting those from the, from the little um, uh, phytoplankton. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And um, so folks, if folks want to observe the jellies, they're in the tank there at the aquarium. Just uh, yep. And the aquarium has their, their hours. If you look on the Science Center or stop by the Science Center, I think they're posted on the door there probably. Yep. On the door and sickascience.org has our, our daily hours on there. And right now we're mostly open every single day of the week uh, from, uh, let's see, 9 to 4. And the, I mean, it, it is, we've spent a lot of time talking about jellies because they're exciting and interesting, but it's not all you have there. No, no, <laughs> you no, have no. These, uh, there's a, so, so I guess uh, there's an octopus, which they've had an octopus for years, but this one turned out to be the, the new species of octopus, yes. I guess. Yeah, exactly. So we have, uh, unless anybody can prove me wrong, I believe we have the only frilled octopus in the world on display right now, um, or only one in the the only frilled octopus on display in the world. It's not yeah, the yeah. only frilled octopus right. in the yeah. world. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, whereas you typically, we think of octopus around here, giant Pacific octopus getting, you know, really, really big, um, you know, up to 20 feet across. Um, this is a sister species of um, the giant Pacific. It definitely does not get as large. We don't know exactly how large. Um, this species has only been known since 2017, and when I got here in December, it was originally thought to be a giant Pacific octopus that had gotten um, caught as bycatch in a long line pot. And I went, wait a minute, this is this is weird. Um, this is not what we think it is because I just happened to be at an octopus conference where they were presenting 
the uh, information about this uh, species um, way back in, I think, like 2015 before they'd actually even published it. Um, so I was able to go, hold up, this is something totally different. So this is a frilled octopus, and we know so little about it. And so every single day is like a new experience um, because we just we have no idea what this animal does. <laughs> and so we, we, I've worked with uh, probably a dozen, no, more than a dozen giant Pacific octopus over the years and, and quite a few red octopus as well. And even then, I'm getting totally thrown off by this guy. Uh, he likes to eat fish sometimes, a lot more than any other octopus I've ever met. Um, he likes to hunt l the little salmon I put in. Uh, <laughs> oh, he actually was hunting them? Oh, yeah. He actually hunts salmon. Um, he, he he likes crab, but it's definitely not like his, his go-to every single time. He seems to be a little bit more generalist. He's a lot smaller. He's about a kilogram right now. Um, whereas, you know, a large giant Pacific might be 20 times that size. Um, and he's just so strange in a lot of ways. And it's just a lot of little differences that all culminate to make this such an, a unique animal. Um, and so me trying to work with this as an aquarist and try and find out what makes him happiest and be able to identify when he's unhappy, um, like... He doesn't like bright light. We know that they are a little bit deeper-lived species, not super, super deep, but definitely um, a little bit further down. So he doesn't like bright light as much. So when it's a bright, sunny day out, originally he started taking some of the eelgrass in his tank and shoving it in the, the front of his den uh, to try and, and shade some of the light coming in. And so I was able to see that, and we have to kind of work a little compromise out, like, all right, you can't take all the eelgrass and do whatever you want with it. We're going to keep this here, but if, if it's a sunny day out, I'll throw a cloth over the tank on that side, and I'll give you some shade. You know, So we, it's trying to figure out what this dynamic is between us, um, and so that's worked out really well. But we don't know how long he's going to live. We don't know ultimately what size he's going to get. We just know he's going to be smaller. Um, so there's just a ton of weird strangeness around this animal even though it's so similar um to the giant pacific in many ways uh even superficially looks pretty close um but it is just behaviorally just a little bit different in pretty much every regard hmm. well and you know octopus have a reputation for being pretty intelligent and do yes. they do they like to have stuff to play with yes and so that's something that i have to now think about in a completely different uh, way because normally with the giant pacific they are so big that they like to just play with people like we can be their play toy in a lot of cases where i would uh often have you know as a part of my job or as a part of um my assistant's jobs would be go play with the octopus you know it needs some stimulation and so we're gonna go have some actual hands-on time with this animal He's smaller and shyer and does not want that. <laughs> and so I have to come up with different ways to keep him stimulated uh, without that, uh, that hands-on interaction. We also, I'm cautious of that just because all octopus are venomous and we have no idea what his venom is like. I assume that it would be pretty mild, but I'm not looking to find out if uh, an accidental bite occurs. 
Um, so hands-on interaction is a little bit iffy in that regard. Um, but as, as I said, I'm giving him live food to hunt. So that's something that I like to do. Uh, we're working on, on jars right now, trying to figure out how to open jars. He's not quite as, as just intensely food motivated as a lot of other giant Pacifics are because they are so much more, um, careful about their actions. Um, they're not just going to immediately run over to food and be like, we're, we're eating now. They're a lot more cautious about their environment. Um, so trying to figure out how to do some, some basic puzzles, um, and do some other interactions like that. And then also kind of moving around the way that his den faces so that he gets some different, um, views and can watch different things and gets a different, um, viewpoint where he feels safe, but he can still see what's going on. That's something I'm working with as well right now. Um, and then just observing, keeping an eye on him, seeing is he, you know, just always in the back and, and not looking so good. Is he just always pale and, and scared looking or is he, you know, curious? Is he popping his eye out and taking a good look? Is he coming out every now and then? Um, so there's just a lot of behavioral um monitoring that goes into it just to try and make sure that he's doing his his best yeah well i imagine that this one also has the ability to change color Mm -hmm. and and like yes texture it seems like that's as important as the color changes in their camouflage as they make themselves look very texture or smooth uh and I remember finding just the remains of an octopus, uh, and uh, I don't know, maybe maybe it'd been eaten by mostly eaten by something. But I I just pressed on the uh, the skin, and 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 uh, I actually did a little video of it because it was the I guess they're chromatophores, or, yep. uh, and and they were uh, shrinking and and expand expanding and shrinking, you know, uh, because of the touch. Yeah, they, exactly. they were just kind of sitting there, but when you touch it, they kind of just do this this thing and and of course they weren't under any direct control of of the overall organism cuz it wasn't alive anymore there's just a little chunk of it but it was interesting how how much that was happening and it was just red and white uh, yeah in that case and I imagine I guess there's other ones that have multiple colors and could yes. do a whole yeah whole... octopus are not known for their whole rainbow of colors it's usually a couple different oh, okay ones. so squid maybe have yeah, more yeah some yeah. squid and then cuttlefish are also um really uh, extravagant in their color changing abilities. And so does this one change colors? I mean, the only times I've seen it has been the same, same color pretty much, but, uh, yep. Yep. So when he's out and about, he's usually as smooth as possible and as red as possible. And then when he's usually back, just calmly hanging out in his, his den, he's usually got a little bit of texture and a little bit of Brown modeling It kind of helps with camouflage, but it also usually signifies the I'm, not excited, but I'm also not in a, any sort of scared mood or anything. I'm not feeling stressed. Um, whereas then white would be, you know, I'm really stressed. White and spiky is get away from me. I'm trying to hide or I'm trying to warn you away. Um, leave me alone. Um, yeah. So fortunately, I've never seen that from him, even though I have seen him ink at me once. Uh, not at me, but it was there was somebody who just came up to the tank and just... He did not like them for whatever reason and just inked at them. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the – I guess – I mean I remember hearing a story about sharks dying in a big aquarium and they, they found yep. out by putting video up. They're like, what's killing the shark? It turned out it was an octopus. But I, So I, it just makes me wonder like 
I, I guess if if these tend to be more nocturnally active, for example, like do you have a, a, a camera or something set up I, on there? I would love to do that. Um, right now, it's been hard just because there's so much daylight. Oh well, yeah, Fair and enough. so yeah. it's like yeah. he doesn't even you know want to come out. He's not as active as he used to be. It used to be like, oh, he's going to come out in the evening, and right now it's, there's just so much daylight that he's like, no, we're we're staying you know in the den. You can bring the crab to me, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, I definitely would like to set up uh, either some sort of time lapse or um, some sort of camera uh, to document that uh, because I that's something that I've I've been doing as part of his enrichment is I'm leaving things for him to find at night mm. and knowing that he's probably going to come out and do some exploration um, once it's dark and so that's that's part of how I've been trying to work that in is try and work his slightly more nocturnal behavior into uh, our routines. Nice. Well, we're kind of getting towards the end here, and, yeah. and we've only talked about a couple of the different mini, mini creatures. I'm sure that there are, are many more uh, folks who want to explore. But is there anything else that you want to mention before we, we wrap up here? Um, I would just say that uh, you gotta you got to come down. I mean, there's so many animals, and it's so easy to talk about even just a couple for so long. Um, we haven't even talked about a lot of my favorites Uh you know, whether that's basket stars or decorated war bonnets and uh, all sorts of things. But so there's a lot of different animals and there's tons of life, you know, here in Sitka. And it's just impossible to try and, and cover that scope, you know, even in a, a few hours uh, to even barely scratch the surface. So if you are interested, definitely come down to the Science Center. Um, you'll probably find me walking around. And I I love talking about this stuff way too much. And I do I take time out of my day to just talk with people all the time um, just because I, I want to introduce all of my work to people. It's, it's something I'm always excited about. Um, and I want to get people excited about the animals that live right here around them, that they are going to be impacting and having them impact them in their daily lives, um, whether they know it or not. Well, it is. It's a nice mix of things. There's the touch tanks there, and then the other other tanks, and a mix of things that you can find on the beaches at various places yeah. around town. Uh, things that are less easy to find, <laughs> yeah. Depending on you know your ability to snorkel or dive, perhaps, uh, and some you know a lingcod and a cabezon and and like large large fish and and small fish and fancy fish and exactly and all the different stars and of of various sorts. We so, cater from whether you want to take like. A quick glance at everything, or you want to sit there and stare at a tank for three hours and find, you know, twenty species that are within, uh, you know, a six-inch square area. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, so great. I appreciate you coming in, and and yeah, I'm sure we'll yeah, thanks, talk Matt. again about some of your some of your other creatures on another time. Absolutely, I would love to. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Matt Wilson, aquarist at the Sitka Sound Science Center. I want to thank him again for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.